Ladies and gentlemen, good morning. Before we get into the episode, perhaps we should talk about the sponsors that make it all possible. I agree, we should. But briefly, let's get into this. Today's episode is brought to you by Grammarly. Let me just tell you, this saves my ass every single day because I do a lot of communicating over email. Sometimes double checking turns into triple checking or even leads to starting over altogether. If that sounds like you, well, don't worry. It sounds like me. It happens all the time. Save yourself doubt and time on emails, messages, and projects with real-time suggestions from Grammarly Premium. The two favorite features for me are the clarity and vocabulary suggestions. Grammarly Premium helps you get your message across quickly without repeated or unnecessary words, and you don't have to search anymore for synonyms. Grammarly Premium offers suggestions to replace overused words and phrases. I use it, like I said, every day on every email. It's so easy to use in real time because it highlights potential errors or issues and you can finish writing and come back or you can just do it in real time as you go through. Another cool thing is that Grammarly offers a free version that's going to keep you safe from embarrassing basic spelling, grammar, and punctuation mistakes. But the Grammarly premium advanced time-saving features will help you write more clearly and efficiently. You can streamline your workload with this seamless integration into Microsoft Office, your internet browser, your phone, and more. And you can close all those thesaurus tabs and save the research time with vocabulary suggestions for more compelling word choices and get straight to the point with the clarity suggestions that will help you eliminate unnecessary or redundant words and phrases. Cut down on your editing time and write more confidently with Grammarly Premium. You can get 20% off Grammarly Premium by signing up at Grammarly.com slash cleared hot. That is 20% off at Grammarly.com, G-R-G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y.com slash cleared hot. This episode is also brought to you by Element, a tasty and delicious electrolyte drink mix designed to support active hydration and a healthy lifestyle. I am very fortunate to call Rob Wolf, one of the co-founders of this organization, a close friend. He's actually a jiu-jitsu training partner. And let me just tell you, after a good hour or two of going back and forth with Rob, I'm dripping in sweat and I reach every single day for an element packet, mix it with my water and begin my rehydration. Now, if performance is your game, the best performers in the world are already using Element. I'm talking about Team USA Weightlifting, NBA teams, NFL teams, the Navy Squeals, the list goes on and on. Element can also help you expand your limits. If you are looking for a way to get more energy while you're low-carb dieting or intermittent fasting, or maybe if you just want to crush your next workout, or how about your next workday? Well, if that sounds like you, Element has the electrolytes to make this happen. Variety of different flavors. I've talked about it before. The watermelon salt is lights out right now. Currently, my grapefruit is my favorite, but they have spicy ones that go great in cocktails and a chocolate salt that goes so good in coffee. If that sounds good to you, check it out. Go to drinklmnt.com slash cleared hot and see what they have to offer. That is drinklmnt.com slash cleared hot. And the last thing is they have probably the best return policy on the planet. If you don't love it, you'll just get instantly refunded. So that doesn't suck. Last, but of course not least, this episode is brought to you by Helix Sleep. Nobody loves sleep more than me. I mean, it's possible that they do, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say I'm the world champion there. And there's plenty of reasons that your sleep may be suffering, whether it's politics, pandemics, love life, lack thereof, or any drama that might be going on in your life. I get it. Why would you pair a terrible mattress with that? So if you're looking for a new mattress. If you're in the market, Helix Sleep has a quiz that takes just two minutes to complete and matches your body type and sleep preference to the perfect mattress for you. 
Everybody's unique. Helix knows that. So they have several different mattresses that you can choose from. Soft, medium, and firm, of course. Mattresses that are great for cooling you down if you sleep hot. And even a Helix Plus mattress for the plus size folks. So like I said, if you're looking for a new mattress, you take the quiz, you order the mattress that you're matched to, and the mattress comes right to your door. Ship for free. No requirement to go into a mattress store ever again. Helix is amazing. I have two of their beds at my house, and I'm having the best night's sleep of my life. But you don't need to take my word for it. They were awarded the number one best overall mattress pick of 2020 by GQ and Wired Magazine. So go to helixsleep.com slash cleared hot, take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they're going to match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. It's going to come with a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. We'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it, but I suspect you will. Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for listeners of the podcast. HelixSleep.com slash cleared hot. And that's it. We're through it. We made it through together. Shall we talk about our guests? Yes, we shall. My guests today all come from the jiu-jitsu world, and they're all black belts with more stripes on their belts than I can even remotely count, all from the SBG ecosystem. So perhaps it is uh, best to start there. Let's start with the founder of SBG, Straight Blast Gym. Mr. Matt Thornton. Matt is my jiu-jitsu coach's coach. So the second guest is Travis Davison, repeat guest of the podcast. And the third is John Frankel. He's also been on a few times. If you're interested in jiu-jitsu or sucking less as a person or being better as a person or working hard and what jiu-jitsu can do for you, then this episode is for you. I'm just going to get right into it. Episode number 192 with Matt Thornton, Travis Davison, and John Frankel. Enjoy. Okay, I got the red smoke. Turn around, north and south, west of the smoke, west of the smoke. Okay, copy, west of the smoke. I'm looking at danger close now. Oh, wait a minute, give it to me, I need it. You're cleared hot. Copy, cleared hot. Where would you guys like to begin? Where awesome, you want to start? awesome seminar today. Yeah. That was an awesome seminar. Thank you for the appreciate it. for the weekend. Yeah, always fun. I feel like Ed really enjoyed being my partner today. It didn't. <laughs> it, it didn't look like it from my no. my vantage point. This morning he said, "Hey, are we partnering today?" And I said, "You're goddamn right, we are." Mm-hmm. And then you said, "Hey, we're going to do mount drill." And he looks at me and he goes, "Fuck." Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Builds character. I, I don't know. He didn't fare He's that great. much better in the north south position either, yeah. though. But he's stoic about it. Ed's cool. Ed's the best. Face never changed, just kept training. Yeah, yeah. Ed's the best. I just happened to weigh a little bit more than him, and it didn't work out in his favor today. You're a purple belt. And heavier than him. Mm-hmm. I think it's more the weight than the <laughs> color of the belt when you're in the top position. <laughs> yeah. I believe it was either you or Travis, or no, it might have been Frankel, one of the two biggest lies of jiu-jitsu, that weight and strength don't matter, because mm-hmm. I have found that that uh, is total bullshit. It does matter. It does matter. That's <laughs> why there's weight class. I, I, <laughs> no shit. <laughs> I, actually, I actually struggled with that concept for a long time. In fact, I uh, there was this weird sort of underlying uh, friction between Matt and I, because obviously- That's because he didn't understand what I was saying. Correct. <laughs> No, no, no. That's what I was going to say. He's absolutely right. I, I didn't understand, but because uh, I was so pissed, be, be, because logically and you? rationally, yeah, me. Uh, I was like, well, that's wrong. Yeah, that's not true. Now here's what happens because I I have guys that still don't understand it. For the longest time, we've talked about non-attribute based training, 
And guys will get mad and they're like, well, attributes always matter. You need attributes in a term. You got to use attributes. I'm like, yes, attributes matter. Size and strength matters. That's why we won't, we want to use them as little as possible when we're training because we actually respect the fact that yeah. they do matter. If they didn't matter, it wouldn't be that important whether or not we used them when we were training. It's so important we take them out when we're training so that way we can make up for people who are bigger and stronger and faster and younger. That's the whole idea of the thing. But for some reason, people struggle with that. Yeah. No, I was, I, I, struggled with that until probably just a few years ago i think um because the other thing is you you take things personally too it's like he's saying something and you're thinking about your own personal game and you're like well so he's talking about me like that's that could have been your guillotine footlock phase so it could have it could have with those uh, two solid moves for a it, decade or so yeah for yep. purple belt throughout purple belt guillotine <laughs> footlock guillotine footlock how was Travis as a student? Let's just get to the root cause uh, of the problem. How was <laughs> Travis when he first came into your gym? Travis was always a social hub. I'll give him that. And so he, he was a, <laughs> a he, social butterfly. So I, I refer to myself as a social butterfly. Which is a benefit to the gym because I'm not. And so he would, he would gather people for social things and things like that. But for jujitsu, I feel like he struggled up until black belt to kind of understand the point of jujitsu is not to crush your training partner when you came into class. It took a while. Hold on. What is the point? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, Frankel actually helped me with that too. We talked, uh, no, it was on a, a different podcast, but with Alex? Uh, yeah, yeah, with Alex. Um, <clears throat> I remember distinctly it was the first camp we held in Montana, and Frankel was there. And at, at the time, it, you know, things ebb and flow and, and, and uh, ideas as they should you you change your opinion as as better information presents itself at least smart people do and so you know things have evolved over the last 20 has it been 30 years now for SBG yep. 2022 will be 30 years mm -hmm. so things have changed a lot um, but at the time a concept that we were working with was this idea of slow ro rolling or flow rolling you hear it gets thrown around in jujitsu circles all the time and it seems really obvious and super simple. In fact, you did some of it at the seminar. Matt started the seminar with breathing and he, yeah. he said flow roll, right? That's Which is not, probably where most of the roles started. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that's Travis's <laughs> that's point. Yeah. No, that, 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 but that is my point. Like, I didn't like the idea of flow rolling, not because the idea was bad, it was because it frustrated me because I personally couldn't do it. Oh, you didn't want to surrender position? I didn't want, yeah, I just, I wanted to win, right? And so it was that trip, because John's kind of always been able to do it very well. Um, and that's where we were at the VFW and talking, I was talking to John and I was being super sincere. Like I, I really did want to be able to do that. Like I really am interested in being able to get on the mat and care more about jujitsu than winning. Um, and it seems conceptually easy to do that. But in practice, that's actually for me been one of the hardest things to do. Um, I, I suspect that would be more common than not. It's easy to say, hey, I don't have an issue with surrendering position or oh, yeah. Yeah. losing. And then you push people into a corner a little bit and the flow row goes to like a medium pace. And by that, I mean a fucking dial 10 comp team yeah, yeah. pace. It's actually very rare. I think it's probably yeah. the hard, single hardest thing to do in jujitsu. Yeah, uh, it has been for me. Yeah. No, that's I could. I think I could name on one hand the black belts in the organization who are good at it now or yeah. like when they started now and. I don't know how many we have. I have 30, you have 12. 12 as of there's yeah, yesterday. probably, I, I can't speak for the Korean yeah, black belt. Korea, there's 30 more, yeah. yeah but, but there's probably at least 100, not counting Korea, 
of which all of them I know well, and I'd say maybe six can do it well. And I'm not including myself in that list. <laughs> <laughs> this is the more honest version of Matt. Yeah. So 30 years, um, how much has jujitsu or the way it's taught or expressed changed in that 30 year time period? Has it gone through phases? Like a decade and then there's a big shift and then another decade? Yes, uh, I think that there are fads that go through, and then there are things that cycle through the the competition scene that everybody wants to see. So everybody's everybody's always interested in whatever the the new competitors are doing. If a guy comes up and he starts doing a lot of particular type of footlocks, everybody wants to jump on that, and they follow the trend that way. As far as teaching, I think it really it's not so much that it, it's evolved in, in the sense that I think it's just generational. The first generation of of American black belts, which would be Chris Howder. Mm-hmm have a very particular association and relationship to jiu-jitsu that's a little different from mine. A little bitter, um, a little more hardcore in terms of fighting. And then the second generation, which would be me, I was probably the first 20 American black belts somewhere in there, but the second generation. My, my relationship to jiu-jitsu is very different from the new guys. My relationship to jiu-jitsu is still very much based on tudo and fighting, and there wasn't tournaments, I mean, you had to go to LA to compete, maybe a couple times a year at best. You know, I had little kids. I lived up in Oregon. There was nowhere for, for me to compete. So everything was in the gym. Everything was about fighting. We were almost always hitting each other. Which Valetuda means essentially every, anything goes, yeah. right? Punching and kicking incorporated into your jujitsu, slapping each other, stuff like that. And my coaches still had that very strong Brazilian influence. And, um, yeah, and the, now it's just a totally different, it's a totally different thing. It's interesting, funny, the, one of the most interesting people to talk to about this is Chris Howder because he's been around for so long, and he's in the hub of jiu-jitsu, and his garage is like neutral territory, so everybody comes, everybody likes him and talks to him. I've been trying to nail him down for a while. Yeah, get him down for podcasts. But we were in L.A., and it was in the beginning of the COVID area. People yeah, were, and people does, were COVID-cautious slash curious, so he doesn't. To be honest, too, he doesn't like to do podcasts, so yeah. you, you have to catch him, but... But one thing he said to me that was really interesting is now the top guys in jiu-jitsu now are a completely different animal from when we were, the top guys when we were. The top guys in jiu-jitsu now are athletes who tend to be nice, and they're, they're not dicks. They're not prone to fight. Like, if you slap one of them, they'll probably walk away and be like, yeah, that was strange. You know, it's just a completely <laughs> different thing where when we were coming up, if somebody slapped you and you didn't fight him to the death nobody was going to teach you jujitsu anymore you, right. you weren't a warrior you weren't part of the you weren't part of the ethos there and it was, and just, it was probably your coach who did the slapping probably like the, was the resilience yeah. were in my case slap it was, in face. my case it was my coach <laughs> but oh not but, to you i mean like in any kind of <laughs> no, no, like, no no it was to me oh no but i'm saying in any kind of argument yeah between like jujitsu and just some random civilian it was more often than not it wasn't the jiu-jitsu guy was getting slapped and be like, oh, I'm a pro athlete. I have more to lose than I have to gain. It was the jiu-jitsu guy slapping yeah. and say like, tuck dick or we're fighting. You know, it was like, put him in that choice. Yeah. yeah. So there's a level of professionalism and like a professional athletes, younger guys who take nutrition and everything very seriously and like we do everything else and they're better. They're, they're beyond anything that we were for sure. They've taken the art at a different level. From a skill level perspective? Oh yeah. Really? Oh yeah. So I mean, Hickson aside, people like that aside, and MMA aside, just talking about just pure jujitsu only, whether it's gi or no gi, oh for sure. I mean, like Howder was talking about the first time he went to train with Hoffa Mendez, and Hoffa 
pulled guard and 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 then just stood back up like went to guard real quick and then just stood up and was just standing there and it's like that's not even human who does that right the, <laughs> the way you can go up and down and just the level of timing and athleticism that these guys have is just a it's just a completely different thing that's where you need your attributes yeah. those fuckers down <laughs> yeah unfortunately those guys have crazy attributes yeah. too i know and yeah. that's the thing that's about why, that's when you that, quit that's the thing though it's like so you take perfect technique yeah and then you layer it with maybe steroids uh and a lot of like train cross training perfect diet nutritionist the whole nine yards and you got that's a different animal i'll tell you though i think the guys that are best i would use hoff as an example i'd be surprised if he's does steroids Mm. No, <laughs> have you I seen have it friends, without a shirt no, on? I have, I have uh, some students who went down to train <clears throat> with the Mendez brothers when they were, were still at Hamon uh, Lemos's place in outside of Sao Paulo, and they came back and they said the gym was interesting. <laughs> there were three rooms. Like you go in to the gym, there's like the office, yeah, where the head coach's office. There's the mat, and I'm like, so far so good, and there's the pharmacy injection room okay, yeah where they mind. go in for yeah the rehab clinic yeah. you know. <laughs> rehab it's clinic. just optimization supplements uh, yeah. but i i i do like that you erred on the side of optimism well i was i was separating him in a different category from somebody like andre Gavau, where it's obvious you know but. yeah they and they were all at autos together oh uh, okay i actually don't care if people do that yeah, just I don't, don't lie to me yeah yeah like i would i would love to see the dirty olympics which, for, for sure. spoiler alert, people listening, the Olympics are dirty. Yep. I would like to see a clean one and a dirty one. The only requirement is you have to tell me everything you're taking it's, in the dirty Olympics. Mm-hmm. And, and if you can throw a Volkswagen like 100 yards, I'm stoked about yeah. that. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. That's <laughs> better for the spectators. But, but, Seriously. But, you know, we see that in uh, powerlifting is the one sport where you see that. So in powerlifting, it's actually the reverse. So they actually, all the meets are assumed that you're on everything mm-hmm. possible. And then it's the, the asterisk is, okay, this is a tested. Yeah tournament i wonder if they will lift the same amount of weights in those different tournaments i feel like that would almost be a good indicator as well yeah oh yeah yeah it's when you said uh howder had a different relationship with jujitsu and some bitterness Mm -hmm. where does the bitterness come from well boy so when he started jujitsu there was really the only place you could go was horian's garage and and i think i can't remember if his first instructor was hoist maybe uh, who barely spoke English, and Horian had brought him in to teach private lessons, and then, then Hickson, and he actually got his blue belt from Hickson as well, and then there was a big argument within the family related to something money or something, and and everybody went their own way. The Machados, who were actually teaching out of the garage as well, Hegan, and because the last lesson that, because at the time you would learn, you'd learn from private lessons, so you'd mm-hmm. have a one-on-one. The last person that gave him a private lesson happened to have been Hegan Machado, because Hickson was absent that day. And so when they all broke up and they split who you go where, Chris went with Hegan. And then once they did that, you weren't allowed to go cross-train. So like the guys that Chris had come up with, like Mark Eckert and uh, David Kama, and other, I'm going to forget a bunch of people, but um, the very first Americans. That the were, Dirty Dozen, if yeah, you will. Yeah, that were his training partners. He couldn't go train. Like he couldn't go train with Mark Eckert. Mark was now with Hickson. He was now with Hegan. If they were, if they found out, if the Brazilians found out that they had been training together, one of the other one would have probably been kicked out, and so there was a real sense of tribalism. And uh, and then you also have to remember, as he would say, that the Gracie family is essentially a kind of a mafia, 
and it's sort of like a blend between a Mormon polygamist family, a mafia, and a, and a, it's a weird kind of cult-like thing. And you're either in or you're out. If you're part of the in-group, then you're, you're part of the in-group. And if you're part of the out-group, you're part of the out-group. And at a certain level, if you're not Brazilian, and even if you are Brazilian, you're, you're not related to the Gracies by blood, you're out. And so you have somebody like, uh, we can use Henry as an example, who trains Kron all the way up to brown belt, but that he's not going to be able to give him a black belt. Or Jean-Jacques, who... Not would, that he wouldn't, like, physically be able to, but, but he, he glass-sealing, essentially? Well, no, he has to get it. He's going to get his black belt from, from a, a Gracie. From a Gracie, okay. Right. Not he, that he couldn't give him one, but it just wasn't going to happen. Exactly. Okay. And the the... All this training, like you could see the same thing with Jean-Jacques and a bunch of other people that Howder would watch this and or be part of the process himself. Here'd be a guy he trained for 10 years who he who he helped bring up, you know, they were both, for example, him and Henzel were both purple belts together, right? So he'd be training these guys and bringing them up. And then at a certain point, it's just like Howder has to go over here and these guys go over here. And, and there's nothing that you can ever do about that. So there's, I think, a residual level of bitterness that some of the first generation guys have where I was in Oregon. I didn't care. Like if they told me not to train with somebody or whatever, they like, what are you gonna do about it? fly to Oregon? <laughs> so no. we, I would train with anybody. And so I don't have that level, right? I've always, and so there's, I think that's where most of that comes from. Hmm. So using the last 30 years of evolution as your optic, what do you say, what would you say the evolution of jujitsu will look like in the next 10 to 20? I'm terrible at making these kind of predictions. I thought MMA was going to go away. John McCain was going to end It's almost thing. dead, from my understanding. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so my guess is probably 100% going to be wrong. But I, what I think is just going to be becoming more and more specialized, where you're going to have schools like Tenth Planet and other schools that focus primarily on no-gi rules, a very specific rule set. And you're going to have some IBJJF schools that focus specifically on that rule set. You're going to have some MMA gyms that maintain some level of the old Vale Tudo Jiu-Jitsu. And then you're going to have maybe a few schools that still do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for fighting, like SBG and some of, the, and some of those. Um, but I think we'll be in a great minority. I think the majority of the schools will be tailored towards a specific rule set. What do you guys think, based I, on your knowledge? So I fully agree. I'm just a little more optimistic. And Matt and I have had this conversation. <clears throat> for sure, it's already kind of dividing up the way he said uh since we and and the and in your grace academy and sbg henry are doing a kind of i don't want to say original jujitsu but but we're we're talking about um self-defense and jujitsu versus jujitsu and jujitsu versus other styles if not totally modern mma um there are it's going to be a niche market, but it's going to be a large niche market. And I think the the more schools that are run by professional athletes and trying, like John Boone was talking about this being with Cobrinha. It's like Cobrinha wouldn't spar with him. And he's too rough. And, you know, they're, they're very selfish. Um, they're creating, well, they're not really creating it, but it, it leaves a pretty large niche market because it's like my headlock analogy, the 99%. I think like 99% of people uh, just want to, feel healthy and confident. They mm -hmm. don't want to be pro athletes. They don't want to drop out of school and train three times a day. They don't want to do steroids. And so if you give them a curriculum where it's like, we're doing the original jujitsu and you're gonna, your health is gonna improve, your confidence is gonna improve, you're really gonna learn to fight, 
not just learn weird gi grips and stuff. Uh, and but you're never gonna get hurt, and you're never gonna. No one's gonna like say if you want your blue belt, you got to win three tournaments. So I think you know they're they're the average person is looking more for this jujitsu, even though the other jujitsu is being kind of artificially driven uh, towards like professional tournaments and stuff. Mm -hmm. And those are big. I mean, they're getting bigger, mm -hmm. but I still think there's you know hundreds of millions of people who would never want to do that, but would be have a lot of fun and gain a lot of benefits from what we're doing. No, I think that's that's absolutely true, and I think that we're always going to have that market. What do you think, Trev? Uh, I mean, I, for the most part, agree with what they're both saying. Um, I do think that we are fortunate that we've positioned ourselves not only in a way that I that I think will be beneficial to us as gym owners, um, but I think we're providing like a real valuable, tangible product for people, which. I take a lot of pride in, um, and it is that market. You know, I mean, you you train at the gym, like you mm -hmm. see. Matt came in the other day and and saw a noon class. He's like, "Are they always this big?" I'm like, "Actually, a lot of times they're bigger than this." And those mats are comprised of men, women, oh, average ages. Average age is probably pushing forty. At noon, I actually think it might be over forty yeah. depending yeah. on the noon class. But but, yeah. but but that's perfect. Yeah, that's perfect. And and we're still teaching. A, 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 a real self-defense. Like I feel confident that if people come and train with us and make it to Blue Belt, so say two years with us, they can take care of themselves. Like they will actually be able to defend themselves if they needed to. Hopefully they won't, yeah. but, but if they needed to. Uh, I'm a little bit more cynical and skeptical with my overall view of where I think jujitsu is going and where it will end up outside of, you know, certain organizations, but um, I wouldn't be surprised at all if 10 years from now, uh, jujitsu was Taekwondo. I really, I, it wouldn't surprise me. Um, if it becomes an Olympic sport, does it accelerate it, that? It, it makes it worse. It'd be horrible. Yeah, and because you hear jujitsu, and, and within, yeah. within the sports jujitsu community, you hear it all the time, you see it on social media feeds and stuff like that, and it's like, oh, wouldn't it be great if, if jujitsu was in the Olympics? And I'm like, absolutely not. Yeah, it'd be horrible. I mean, my daughter's trying to make the Olympics in judo. Judo was the most martial of the martial arts, in my opinion. And, and truthfully, jujitsu and judo were the same, right? It all, it, it really started in Japan, not Brazil. And what happened to judo would happen to yeah. jujitsu. And, and we're already seeing it on a smaller scale with things like the IBJJF or, you know, all these other tournaments. And as, so, as soon as you start creating these artificial rule sets and then you have to start to train and tailor your training to a specific set of rules, I think it loses its credibility. Um, and you're also subject to, you know, oh, the Russians are beating the Japanese. Let's take the leg attacks out. Okay, well, and it loses what it, what it actually was. And I mentioned this on Alex's podcast the other day too, but I don't think that all the martial arts that we make fun of now and that we kind of poo-poo or whatever is, oh, well, that's not real or that's not functional, that doesn't work. At some point, I think that those martial arts were functional. I think the way that they tailored the rule set, like Taekwondo is a great example, it's an Olympic sport. Mm. And I think it lost the martial side as that started to become an outside pressure. I think that could easily be what happens to jujitsu in the next 10, 20 years. Damn. How'd you find your way to uh, 
martial arts, Matt? I was always <clears throat> interested in what works in a fight. Got beat up a few times. Became kind of obsessed with that question. At what age did you get beat uh, up? Oh, you know, multiple times. <laughs> starting probably like eight, nine. So you were six foot at eight. Yeah. You're seven, <laughs> five now. I was like, a, who the hell is beating you up at the I, size you are? <laughs> <laughs> I was a uh, extremely skinny, bookish little kid. So... And I became obsessed with what works in a fight and what doesn't. And then, then I started to see martial arts. I'm like, would this martial art beat that one? This, I want to learn what works. And I had determined before I went in the Army that boxing. I already had kind of the conclusion that most martial arts were bullshit. So I was going to do kickboxing. And when I, when I left the military, I came to Portland and I was doing kickboxing and I'd also been doing Jeet Kune Do Concepts. And I, I've talked about this a lot, so I don't want to bore everybody with this, but the reason why I went into Jeet Kune Do Concepts is because it sounded like what MMA is now. And very quickly became disillusioned that it's not. You know, There was a lot of hypocrisy and a lot of what they were doing. They would say one thing and do something different. And around that time, I ran into Brazilians. I ran into Hickson and, and Fabio Santos. I was like, man, this is, this, is, this is what I've been looking for. And then I opened up my own place. And so that would have been 92. As a blue belt, you had to open up your own place? I did, yeah. But you have to remember, like, uh, as a blue belt, you were almost like a god back then. Yeah. I have to say it. <laughs> I mean, I'm just thinking back to yeah. a few months ago. I'm like, uh, no, I'm not opening up. Yeah. <laughs> with the but imagine if, you, imagine if you moved to you know, a little island country where there was no jiu-jitsu. Would you quit or would you teach yeah. what you know? Oh, and I try would to go fuck to... those little, little bastards I mean. Yeah, up. right. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, just for the context of that, that particular thing, I didn't, o I didn't open up a school because I wanted to make money. I didn't think I would make money. And I didn't open a school because I wanted to teach. The sole reason I opened up a school was so I'd have training partners. I just wanted people to train with. I wanted to train. And I would, first 10 years I taught, I used my students as sparring partners. That's basically what happened. I'd teach them enough that I could Heavy spar bags. them every day. Yeah. And, uh, I, um, yeah, I can attest to that. But there was no <laughs> jujitsu. There was no MMA. The first ever jujitsu school in or in the whole state would have been mine. And there was no internet. I couldn't go on. There was no YouTube, you know. You had maybe a couple VHS tapes. So if one of Fabio's blue belts, for example, came from San Diego and came up to Oregon and stayed for a week, that was like a gold mine. We could get so much information from <laughs> mm -hmm. him. And then I would teach that to my students, and we would spar and do that. That's how it worked, you know. What belt was he when you walked into the gym, Travis? Purple. Mm. Damn, we're talking the early days. Because oh, yeah. you guys have all the stripes. That was, yeah. <laughs> that, that was, that was 22 years ago. Yeah. yeah. 23 maybe yeah so i think on previous podcasts i think we've done a very good job of talking about what it is to be a good student like advice for beginners i mean it's simple go to class and do what you're told I sh simple not easy i'll throw that on there um so i'm curious just i'd like to get the highlights of your guys career all three of you whether it's a like your what was your hardest tournament match or like the highlight of your career you get oh. to go first. Okay. Well, actually, uh, you could, I mean, you're, I, the, you're the boss of these two, so you can decide who goes first. <laughs> so, well, I'll, you're not I'll, the boss. I, didn't, I haven't competed very much. Yep. I competed very little. And through, from the moment I first opened my school in 1992, I had a little boy. Yeah. So I had little kids, poor, living in Oregon, 
couldn't have gone to LA once a year if I wanted to to do a tournament. Did you really have any interest in it anyway? Because for some people, oh, it's I would just have. like, man. I would have for sure. I would okay. have jumped on it. So if you put if you transplanted me the way I was there in Los Angeles now, I would just be another guy, a student that would compete at every tournament that was possible because I just wanted to do jujitsu. Yep. But uh, the first time and I went to compete, I went down to Los Angeles as a blue belt, and uh, I went to Hickson School and watched. And I was watching this big guy, big heavyweight guy, teach a way to open up the closed guard that I'm not a particular fan of, where you stand up and put the collar across the throat and force the guard open. But I was watching him do it, and I was thinking to myself, if he does that I, to me, I'm going to armbar him. And then I was watching Hickson on the other side of the mat with a bunch of Brazilian black belts who'd flown in, and he was teaching a class. And I'd never seen anything like that before, like a room full of black belts. That was amazing to me. The next morning, tournament comes. I didn't know anything about cutting weight. I didn't know anything about weight classes. I was in <laughs> out of shape, <laughs> 240 pounds. Super heavyweight. Yeah. That's what I'm talking about. I, I, I could have easily cut down to whatever the less one was, if I'd even paid any attention, but I didn't. I just walked in and I signed up. So I was in the unlimited weight class. And I look across the mat for my first match and it's that guy. Oh, the caller. <laughs> and uh, I had no takedowns. I hadn't worked with uh, any of the wrestlers yet, so I had no standing whatsoever. I hadn't learned nothing. So I pulled guard and then he tried to <laughs> open up my legs that way and I armbarred him. Sweet. And, and then my second match was uh, uh, Wellington Diaz, guy who tried to pass my guard so hard he rolled me backwards and I ended up in a triangle and I finished him and the next day was the finals and I was matched up with um, God what's his name you have to give me more than that he beat Randy later on and, and went to do really good in Abu Dhabi Rico Rodriguez Rico, Rico Rodriguez who was a 300 pound whatever he was he was like 295 pound monster who had worked his way across the mat for me through everything with a head and arm and then squeeze their head until they tap pass the guard head and arm squeeze their head they tap and then the, everybody will go crazy and so it was me versus rico rico i thought when i was watching him i think i can triangle him and i did i caught him in a triangle and then he started to posture and he started to come around and my legs were just was hanging on as best as i could i had a torn acl at the time <laughs> sounds horrible <laughs> I, I had no uh, no corner man but fabio came to his credit he saw me there and ran over to the mat and he told me put your foot on the hip and you know turn the corner and lock it back in which had I done that, I would have been awesome, but I didn't listen to him. My legs popped open. He took head and arm and squeezed my head so hard. Are we talking scarf here? Yeah, it's scarf holding. Okay. Yeah. And, um, Primitive version. Yeah. It was a 100% neck crank, but so yeah. what, right? He got me and then I tapped and so that was it. So he went up getting gold for that one. But I only competed a couple times after that. Yeah. So I didn't have that much. What's been the highlight of your journey so far? Uh, watching other people. Watching what jujitsu does good for other people, I find more rewarding than anything else, especially people who I know have other really horrible things happen in their life, and then they come in, and jujitsu just transforms their ability to relate to the world. I find that really rewarding. Yeah. Travis? Uh, I actually competed a lot uh, up until I, the last time I competed was Masters yeah. World four but, years ago. Um, the highlight for me was um, in terms of tournaments. Uh, I had gotten my black belt, and and everyone at this table can relate to this, I think, and most people who are listening that do jujitsu can relate to this. But there's a imposter syndrome that that takes place in jujitsu. 
basically every time you get a belt, it's like you want to get your next belt and then you get it and you're like, oh God, am I really this belt? Like I, I had this experience almost at every belt. Um, but I got my black belt <clears throat> and I was like, man, but am I a black belt? Like, and uh, so I signed up for Pan Ams. Um, and I just, I did it because I wanted to see like, and and for people that are listening, by the way, this isn't how you decide if you're actually the belt that you're, you're that belt. If your coach gives you that belt, you're that belt, unless you don't trust your coach. Um, but for me, I felt like I needed to test it. And it's probably not the best place to test it because Pan Am's is actually the biggest tournament because um, they actually have more competitors than Worlds because of the, the age and, and stuff like that involved. Um, but I flying triangled my first opponent and I was like, okay, I can, I can roll, not only roll with other black belts, but I can beat uh, competitive black belts with the submission. So that was probably the highlight for me in terms of competing. And I, I went on to lose my next match. Um, so I've always enjoyed competing. I, I, I like the uh, experience, the, the testing. And, and whether I win or lose matches, I always come off the mat proud because I feel like I've done something that I was a little bit afraid of. Yeah, at least you're out there. Yeah. Well, a lot of times we went to Grappler's Quest one year and I had 26 students competing. And then, of course, their parents and family members and stuff. And here I am the owner of the gym and I have to get out there now and compete in front of people that are paying me money to learn something. And that, that, that's a lot of pressure, but I think doing it and, you know, um, that particular tournament went my way and I, you know, I won gold or whatever, but there've been plenty of other times where I go out there and I lose in front of my coach or I lose in front of my peers or worse yet, my students and stuff like that. But I'm always surprised and, and, uh, reminded that they're more intelligent than that because they're always like, man, I'm so proud of you. I, I, it makes me feel really good that you're willing to go out there and you know, put yourself on the line, expose yourself and, and be vulnerable basically. So I've always enjoyed competing. I don't think it's for everybody. Um, you've heard my speech. I mean, yeah. basically, you know, if you wanna do it, you absolutely should. If it completely terrifies you and you don't do it because of that, you should do it at least once and then never do it again if you don't want to. Um, but if you're comfortable and you're like, you know what, I just don't like competing. I don't want to spend the money. I don't want to put the effort in, whatever. Then don't do it. Yeah. You know, um, in terms of, you know, outside of tournaments and competing and stuff like that, uh, the community uh, that Keith and I have built in Montana um, humbles me, blows me away. We have a thousand students um, active, right? I mean, it's, I don't know how many of thousands of people have come through the doors, but mm-hmm. we currently have a thousand that continue to come through the doors. Uh, that's pretty amazing. Uh, yesterday when I gave my twins their black belts, like, I don't, I don't know, I don't think it really resonated with me or, or, or that I actually realized what had just happened, but I started jujitsu before they were even conceived, right? And so to give them like I would have, I would have never even thought that that was possible. I felt the same way when Matt gave my wife her black belt. She didn't do jujitsu for the first part of our relationship. She only started doing it as an assistant coach when we opened the gym here because I needed an assistant coach. More out of necessity than yeah. desire. Co- co- correct. <laughs> and so I, I, I got a text message when I woke up this morning 
uh, from Coach Daniel, who's my partner in, in, in Whitefish. And uh, it was just this really nice message. And that's when it really sunk in. He's like, man, that must have really felt amazing. He's like, I, I felt privileged to be there to watch you give your kids their black belts in front of your coach. And I was like, yeah, that is pretty, pretty amazing. You know, and now Ricky's opening his own school first class tomorrow, yep. right? I mean, that's sometimes I fail to stop and really realize just how big of an impact jujitsu's had on me, but then also the impact that I've been able to have on other people through jujitsu. So, I mean, it's humbling for sure. So, I have one thing to add, which I haven't <clears throat> heard on a post- podcast yet. Matt may have forgotten. So when Matt and I first met, I, <laughs> it was like 2002, I still remember. Um, yeah, it would have been 2002, May-ish, Steve Whittier brought him out to the East Coast, and I don't know Matt's structure now, but back then, people were, like, he would go to people who were kind of on the fence. They'd see him in the magazines, really minimal minimal internet. So they see him in the magazines, maybe some VHS tapes. Whittier had been at a really kooky JKD concepts place, and I was already done with it but had had done it in la jkd concept is that bruce lee yeah okay bruce lee translate bruce lee's philosophy translated into some other things like filipino martial arts and thai boxing and every school focusing a little bit differently anyway um i had already been reading matt's stuff in the magazines i'd seen i don't know if i'd seen the videos yet but i and i was like yeah of course I, i agree i agree i agree but we had no way to contact each other and back in the day, uh, it was, uh, he would show up for a weekend seminar and Friday he'd do a private with the host and one other person who the host could choose. And Whittier asked me if I wanted to do it. I said, hundred percent, I want to do it. And so Matt came to Boston Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which we're, it's not where we had the seminar. We had this, he, he rented some hall for the seminar. So he came to the place where I was learning Jiu-Jitsu and we, you know, we did a little, we did a little stand up, we did a little clinch, we did a little ground, we talked a lot. We all got along, and then we went to the seminar the next day, and it was either Saturday or Sunday. Um, Matt had just gotten his black belt, and I was a brown belt, and I didn't know there were no stripes back then. I didn't know when I was going to buy. It turns out I got my black belt like a month later. I got mine in June. This was May. When did you get yours? Like March or February or January? Uh, I think or it was December 2001. Right. So he would have been six months yeah. in a black belt, right? And he saw me, and he's like, oh, how long have you been training? And, and I told him, and he he's like, at the end of Saturday or Sunday, he's like, you think I'm a black belt? <laughs> yeah. no, but, no, but but listen. Yeah, see, in, it's a real no, thing. Yeah. But in retrospect, it makes total sense because, yeah. like, when I th- at the time I was just like, yeah, and that was all I thought about. But then in retrospect, I I thought about it a lot, like over the last 20, 19 years or whatever. I'm thinking like, yeah, because I was sitting around. He knew I, you know, did a year with Hicks, and then I'm sitting around like eight, seven more years with Roberto, you know. It's like, oh, you're in this thing. Like, you're like Chris Howder. You have like a Brazilian teaching her every day. And I was like, seminar, mm-hmm. homework, mm-hmm. seminar, homework, seminar, homework. So it's a, it's like a legit question. Like, you're here every day with a black belt. Do you think I'm a black belt? Like, yeah, but but uh, no one's immune from that, mm-hmm. you know. Um, that was interesting the first time we met. So so I mean, Matt's pretty um, reserved, and so some people will will take that the wrong way but i but you know with our relationship we don't we're neither one of us is chatty but uh 
it's it's interesting. You know, we're always we're always thinking about jujitsu, and I I think back to that first meeting. He was already like concerned with like Travis in a different way, not like I have to run out to tournament. But everyone, I think, every belt I got, I felt it's too early. You know, my instructor always he he was Brazilian, and he said the the literal translation from Portuguese is the belt should be heavy. Mm-hmm. The hmm. belt the belt should be heavy. Described as that, but I like that. Yeah, and you you get that metaphorically. Yeah, yeah. that's. That's heavy, and like you're gonna work your way into it. But if you, but if you never add that weight, you plateau where you are. You know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's funny. I don't remember that, but yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Well, it was a, probably a very small circle of people that you could ask that question to back at that time. Yeah, yeah. and and John's right. I I did not. I've never in my life gone to a school and taken classes every day. And I, I was up in Oregon. I would have my coaches come to me. Hickson would come. Or then after that, almost always Howder would come, mm. and then I would train. I'd wrestlers were coming. I trained more with Olympic level wrestlers than I did jujitsu black belts. And when I would go down to LA, they would basically just throw people at me. You know, I'd go down and I would, I'd take my students with me, yeah. and we'd go into like the Machado Academy, and like this room, that, twenty guys would come and try and kill yeah. us. That was that was my very first tournament. It was uh, back then. It was Matt, Cress, Tom Overhue. Yep. Uh, Nate Corey, myself, Ricky, and then the kid who I shaved his eyebrow off. Yeah, yeah. He quit after that. But um, Meanie. He deserved it. But that's a different story. Um, that was our first tournament. It was a Machado's tournament is actually what the tournament was. And, and we went, I remember distinctly, going. it was Redondo Beach, I think, mm-hmm. uh, going into the Machado's school and feeling like we were like the bad news bears or something like yeah. these... <laughs> No, but but but, it, but for real, that's what it was. Yeah. I mean, we were we were kind of these guys, hillbillies up in Oregon, like, you know, teaching ourselves. Yeah, and they had to show you because like if if they couldn't like beat you, then what are they doing down there with all these magic Brazilians, right? Right. Yeah. So then, where'd the idea for SBG come from? The name? No, just starting the organization in and of itself. Ah, okay. So I started my own little gym in Kaiser, Oregon. Uh, just south of Portland because I wanted to have training partners. Uh, the JKD people that were my peers at the time that ran schools all told me that's never going to work. People don't want to spar. People want to click sticks together, get certificates, that kind of stuff. So I And I believed them. So I thought, okay, I'm always going to have some shit job and have to, but I, I want to do what's real. Very quickly, my little tiny gym, my first gym was probably very literally probably twice the size of this room (laughs) that was it yeah (laughs) and uh and that filled up as you can imagine within a couple months and i realized that probably half the guys training with me were driving commuting from portland like i was so i i went and gathered up a couple hundred bucks and opened up a second place in portland and before i knew it i had two and then ultimately uh three gyms in the area and then a guy named um daniel doobie came to Mm -hmm. oregon Daniel Doobie was a, a kind of a famous French kickboxer, box Francais savat kickboxer, who had been known in the JKD community. He was, I, theoretically, I guess you say, the first guy to ever come to, in modern times, to come to America and teach savat. And, uh, and very, very good, actually, very fast, very good. And I have always wanted to train with him, so one of my students somehow made a connection with him and brought him up to Oregon and nobody had seen him for years he disappeared he moved to a place called Reunion Island for reasons that we don't have time in this podcast <laughs> non-extradition <laughs> treaties <laughs> but um, 
he came, he saw what I did, he really liked what I did. And long story short, he invited me to come teach a seminar. And it was my first ever seminar was in Reunion Island, which is on the other side of the world. It's a tiny island off the coast of Madagascar, out by the uh, Mauritius. Uh, French, nobody speaks English. Not a single person on that island speaks English. Um, and so Daniel was my translator. Didn't say anything I ever said. I don't know what the fuck he said, but it was nothing that <laughs> I said. That's generally the way my experience <laughs> with translators have gone as well. Yeah. But um, he brought me out for a seminar, and I, and I thought, well, this is cool. I like doing the seminars. And, and, uh, and I went back to the States, and some magazine articles had come out, and pretty soon other guys started to call me. And the vast majority of them were people who had the same background I had. They had been through Jikuno concepts and kind of become disillusioned, wanted what I wanted. I always felt in a way that I was, and I still feel this way, but in, in, I primarily traffic in the obvious. And, and so to me, most of what I say is just common sense. But what happens is if you're the first person to say it or the first person to say it publicly, people tend to really like that. They're like, wow, somebody's saying what I've been thinking in my head as obviously true. Nobody else would fucking say it. He said it. So then they would contact me and they would bring me out for a seminar. And, uh, and that became SBG. Because I'd go out there and I'd say, hey, we want to train with you. We want to do what you're doing. I'm like, okay, well, here's the deal. I want to make sure I see you this amount of times so that we can train together. You keep training and then you can teach, teach what I show you just like, like what I'm doing. And if you want to call your place SBG, call it SBG. Since then, <laughs> we've formalized the process. Like that. <laughs> because in, Yes, in, we, uh, we have. <laughs> In, in hindsight, um, you know, I, there were a lot of problems that came up later in later years because everything was so informal. At the time, yeah. it was basically just a handshake and friendship-based type thing. Um, and now, obviously, there's more more to it. But, but that's how it started. It was just guys that felt like I did that wanted to do what I wanted to do. And just like me, there was nobody, no school where they could go to do it. And so they were wanting to start their own group and get, get stuff going. This island in Madagascar, is that where the village of people your size yes. were all trying to fight you? Yeah, yeah. Off the coast of Madagascar. But yeah, that's a funny story. I got there and uh, <laughs> he came and picked me up. He was stoned. He's always stoned. He came and picked me up, uh, like rolled down the window of his Mercedes and marijuana smoke just pours out. Beautiful <laughs> volcanic island. Drove me around endlessly for a couple hours and explained to me that when and it takes a long time you have to fly to johannesburg and then from johannesburg you have a long layover and then you fly there it's like a 12-hour layover in atlanta to joburg and the joburg flight at the time i think was the longest in the world like 19 hours sounds 21 hours 21 hours time in the metal tube yes so i land and i'm exhausted i don't know what time it is uh and he tells me these guys are coming from the mountains and fight you <laughs> and, and I said, from okay. the giant tribe. <laughs> yeah, and he said, he said, these these black guys, they have big afros, they don't wear shoes, they only run. They're all about your size, but at least a hundred pounds heavier. And by that time, I was like, this is fucking ridiculous. There's not going to be some giant black guys with afros and no shoes come <laughs> beat me up so, sounds like a kung fu movie yeah I so I got back to his little. He had a bungalow slash hotel kind of on the cliff overlooking an ocean. And I got back there and I'm kind of sitting down. I haven't even gotten to my room yet. <clears throat> and I look over in the doorway and fucking hell, there's like a six foot eight black guy with a giant <laughs> afro and no shoes on. And behind him there was like six more. And they had walked from the <laughs> volcano where they live and come to- And they're 100 pounds heavier than you? They were, I was probably at the time, you know, I was really skinny back then. I was probably 
200 maybe no okay. no yeah. no 200 220 maybe 220 yeah. yeah but this was this was this would have been years before before you this would yeah. have been the, yeah anyway yeah they were like the, my weight now they were like 280 and uh and so I'm like, okay. And I just, I just wanted to, I didn't want to start exchanging blows with these guys. So I was like, well, I said, like, let's roll, right? And he, he had some Japanese tatami straw mats on, on this hardwood <laughs> tile floor overlooking this cliff. And then one after the other, I'd bring them in. And thank God, they, nobody on that island knew anything. <laughs> so, so you could have been a god. I could have been a god. It was, it was literally sweep, mount, finish, sweep, mount, finish. I'd do it over and over again jump into an arm bar next guy i actually iron man my seminar that year and there was probably 100 people there and i and i would just wrestle with everybody but uh yeah that's that was that story <laughs> what do you feel like they were told because totally different story i was gonna say it, yeah. i'm curious as i feel like obviously this individual was the catalyst for this whole thing happening 100%. i would love to know the tale that he spun to them <laughs> uh, uh, i'll tell you a funny story about that because I would say stuff, I'd go and like try and explain and teach real well, and I'd have a long two minutes of explanation, and he'd say like three words in French. Well, other times I would I would be very brief, and I'd, I'd just say something, and then he'd go off on this long diatribe, and I'd be like, what the fuck is he even talking about? I can't speak French. Around my third trip there, it's a third or fourth trip, I went quite a few times. I met a young French girl and spent most of the time with her, and she came to watch me at the seminar. And about midway through the seminar, she calls me over. She's like, Matthew, come here. I'm like, what? And she's like, do you have any idea what he's saying? <laughs> and I'm like, no, what's he saying? He's like, well, every time you go over to try and help somebody, he's like, oh, he's going to fuck you up. Fire <laughs> <laughs> started. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. Is this the same island where I heard you went surfing and your ass got introduced to some uh, sea urchins? I got yeah, all the dirt. You've got at this a point. lot of stories here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, got, I might uh, have some inside gouge from somebody that we all know. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I I got on that first trip. I got super drunk on uh, on this alcohol that they gave you for free at the bar, which is the first indication that you should. Drink it. <laughs> yeah. And there were these big like pickle jars filled with sea life, like sea urchins and starfish and shit. And then they give you a shot of it, and every time you drank it, they'd ring a bell. <laughs> and um, I got I got super sick, and and got some kind of infection this was before my first ever seminar there and to the point where i was hallucinating i was in i had such a high fever i'm laying in this bungalow and i'm seeing snakes and everything everywhere and i told daniel i need a doctor i need some i think i need antibiotics and he sent a witch doctor this witch doctor guy comes <laughs> so awesome. and uh, he drank alcohol and spit it on me and <laughs> some chicken feathers and shit you're cured and the next day, I still have an extreme fever. Now, man, I'm like, I want a proper doctor here. So he calls a French doctor. Guy came, gave me antibiotics. And then, you know, 24 hours later, I was okay. And then I go to the seminar. Seminar was huge. Easily 100 people there. I taught for a couple hours. And then I, I literally Ironmaned anybody that wanted to come up. But again, it was like they, they had nothing. Yeah. They had no wrestling. They had no grappling whatsoever. So it was, it was fun. Was and then a, did you go surfing? 
I did go surfing. I'm a terrible surfer. I got caught, fell on some rocks, had some sea urchins in my butt. <laughs> <laughs> There's, um, you see the sharks there. There's a lot of bull sharks in Reunion Island, and they and you can see them, you know, swimming underneath. Aren't those highly there. aggressive? Yes. Yeah, they're not. They're, they're not friendly. I don't think. Yeah. And Danny would just say, "Oh, the sharks come. They're just like dogs. You just punch them in the face and tell them you're not scared. They'll run away." And I'm like, <laughs> "Yeah, that's not how that fucking works at all." The sharks at all. No. <laughs> Is that the? I remember early on when when I was. Uh, training with you and, and we would hang out at like the Matador and stuff. Mm -hmm. You would always tell me these stories of this island that had these bats. Was oh, no. That's different. That's the Seychelles. Oh, okay. Yeah, the bats will come attack the top of your head, especially if you're blonde because it looks kind of like a coconut. I'm not into <laughs> any of that shit. <laughs> That's that, the... The, I don't know how much you know about the Seychelles, but it was taken over by a dictator with only about seven guys, and he took over the entire country, which is kind of cool. He took over the entire country with mm -hmm. seven guys? Yeah, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but less than 100. And he's a communist, became communist dictator, and, and was in charge when I was there. And there was one coup attempt, a very famous uh, coup attempt in, I think it was the very early 80s, with a couple American soldiers and some South African guys who flew over, and there I think it was ha less than half a dozen, and they almost took over the entire country. Basically, the idea was if you get a hold of the radio station, you're gonna own this place. And um, they got, for some reason, got it was figured out who they were at the airport, and a, a long firefight ensued, and that dictator hired some mercenaries that came over from Africa to arrest these guys. But when I was there, because of that, he had, there, nobody had guns. Nobody had bows and arrows, nobody had crossbows, nobody had anything, and so the bat population had just gone crazy, and they had these big, very aggressive bats that were everywhere. And you were the closest to them flying. <laughs> yeah, right. The lightning rod. Yeah. 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 Was that, you had frosted tips back then? I probably did, yeah. Oh yeah, Co you Coconut City. Coconut City. Yeah, and I- Google I, I, pictures, are there Google, pictures? Google, yeah, yeah. Google, yeah, Google, Matt Thornton, Black Belt Magazine. Oh, you don't want to yeah. do that. Yeah. yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. I'll do Google. that after the show. After I may not be show. able to conduct myself professionally <laughs> if I look at that picture now. <laughs> it's pretty sexy. <laughs> I almost got in trouble on that particular occasion too because I met a young woman at the bar and I started Dude, hanging out This is a common her. theme, by yeah, the way. Yeah, yeah, I see something. Um, I realized it was like these huge guys standing around me all the time and, I, and that was his daughter. His okay. being the dictator's daughter? Yeah, yeah. And the guy I was with was like, you realize who that is? I'm like, I have no idea who it is. Like, that's such and such daughter. You better be good. I thought we're going to take you out there and feed you to the fish. Well, it sounds like you've taught in some amazing places. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, for a variety of reasons. Yeah. Uh, does any one place stand out as your favorite? Oh, boy. I like all those places. Like, for me to be a 20-something-year-old kid and go to, like, the Seychelles Islands. Yeah, it's and amazing. Just, just amazing experience for me. I would say the most beautiful places I've ever been has been the Seychelles. It's, it's unmatched. I've, I've been to Hawaii. I've been to lots of I've never seen anything quite like it. It's unbelievable. And outside the one major island they have where the casino is, it became famous for the Blackwater and all the stuff later on. And there's some tourism the other islands, I, w I don't know how many there are, but dozens of other islands are pretty much just just gorgeous, unoccupied, maybe one or two people on the whole island. You can swim to them. The water's always really? warm. Oh, yeah. The water's, you know, tepid and warm. It's just... I don't swim with bull sharks. You can see... I didn't see any sharks there. You can see all the way down to the bottom. It was just unbelievably beautiful place. So in terms of just sheer beauty, I would I would say that. As far as people... I've always enjoyed the UK and Ireland more than anywhere else in terms of, 
association just because I feel like they have a, as Americans, we have more in common with them yeah. than I would necessarily with Scandinavians or Germans and things like that. But I've, I feel very privileged to have traveled everywhere I have and I've loved everywhere I've gone. How many SBG locations are there now? I'd have to add them up, but you know, if we count the affiliated gyms, for example, John's affiliated gyms in Ireland and mm -hmm. things like that, then we'll have more than 75. That's awesome. Yeah. That is awesome. I heard your book is getting ready to come out. Yes. The title, the I gift, like very much. The Gift of Violence. Uh, many people would say it's not really a gift, man. Yeah, that's true. That's true. You're, I liked your answer best out of when I queried people on that about what is a gift. I won't ruin it for people, but it's in there. Okay. I forget what I said. There's a good chance if you asked me the same question, I'd give you a different answer. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was a good answer. Yeah. But yes, I, it's going to be published by Pitchstone Publishing. They actually agreed to do the second book as well. So I don't know how much we want to talk about that, but I'll, I'll, it's up to you. Okay. Um, Why a book? What, what what was it that uh, that got you to a place where you decided you wanted to write one? Yeah. So I think eight years ago now, seven or eight years ago, I had decided I was going to write a book. I'd wanted to write a book for a long time, and I basically wanted to write primarily about training methods and how what we do, the the epistemology of what we do. And I happen to have. Uh, lunch with a writer who I had admired quite a bit, which was Sam Harris, and I, and I had been talking to him a little bit, and he'd seen some of what I'd written and was encouraging, and I explained to him, you know, the problem I'm having is that I'm not writing really a jujitsu book. I'm not writing a book. I mean, it does, it's not going to fit next to Saul Ribera's Jiu-Jitsu University. And he said, what you're really writing about, after he heard what I was saying, is you're writing about violence. You know, it should be in the nonfiction section. It should be a book about violence. And as soon as he said that, I, I felt like He's right, 100%, and that's what I need to do. And then I also felt a certain responsibility because it's such a heavy topic, an important topic. So I did several years of research. And the first thing I did before I read anything else that was on the market that might be related to what I, did, I, I was going to write was I went to the raw data in the United States primarily about homicides and things like that. That's an exercise I think that everybody should everybody do. Everybody should do that. And there's, as you know, there's so many things that stand out immediately to you. It tells yeah. a story right away. It's uh, also a good narrative in there and how data can be, what would be the correct word for this? Manipulated. Po manipulated yeah. and portrayed in a way to make a point. Exactly. That if you actually go back and look at the data yourself, as opposed to just blindly listening to what somebody is saying about the data, it paints a totally different picture. Exactly. It's an additional step, but it leads you towards the truth. Yes, exactly right. So I did that, and I, I had come to some conclusions just from looking at the data that, you know, some some things that you can't get around is this primarily related to men, primarily young men. So we're talking about between 17 and 23 is the last uh, majority. Smartest age. Yep. <laughs> and, <laughs> Made no mistakes yeah. at that age. Yeah. There's <laughs> massive differences between racial groups Yep. In, in the data. And there's just no way around that. And so when you look at that, the first question you, that I ask myself is, well, why is there such a massive difference? And most of the people that will apply an answer will give you an, an ideological answer right away. So if you're talking to somebody who's from the political left, they're going to say systemic racism, which means what? You have to boil that down. It's such a, a broad term. Yep. And ultimately what it comes down to, they'll come down to some financial reason related to unemployment or related to income, that kind of thing. And the problem with that, because the first thing I, I think anybody who's intelligent and is actually interested in the truth should do when they have something like that is you go back and look at the data and control for that. 
which I did. And you can control for that. And there's still massive dis- differences yeah. in it. And so the only thing I found that matched up and would explain those differences in a logical way and what matches up the best when you control for it is out of wedlock birth rates. And so any population that has a large percentage of out of wedlock birth rates, a large percentage of young men without fathers in the home is gonna be a violent population. That's basically the bottom line. And, and the, the, I don't think it has anything to do with race. I think it has to do with that. And so when you look in, the, in, in America, the Afri- African-American out of wedlock birth rates in the 70s. And, and you can match that up. And when you go to places like Chicago or New Orleans, and you go to some of the places where they're having these shootings, these awful violence every weekend, we're talking about 95% or so out of wedlock birth rates. These are, these are young men killing other young men, fatherless young men killing other fatherless young men over petty disputes related to status. It's not about unemployment. It's not about the drug trade. The drug trade doesn't help, but most of them are making McDonald's wages. Most of the shootings are about status. And so, I guess to bring that back, when I, when I wanted to write a book about, what I wanted to write is I wanted to write about all the things that are related to violence that people need to know to keep themselves safe that aren't just the physical aspects of what we do, meaning you know martial arts and firearms and things like that. That's in there too, but the first book is just everything else. And for a long time, the self-defense guys in the United States would want to pigeonhole us as, well, we're sports. We're sports guys. We're not the street guys. And we don't, we don't teach all the other pre-incident, you know, pre-physical contact stuff that people need to know how to do. And that's a fallacy. Because what we do is so much better physically, it's a mistake to think that what we, the non-physical stuff we do is inferior. And so I wanted to give people all the stuff that happens before a fight that they need in an intelligent way and a simple acronym that they could use, which is MIND. And it's an order of priority. And the first thing, the first most important thing I, th- I think we put there to, to prevent violence is maturity. I think anybody that l- took a look at the raw data the way I did and, and hasn't determined that at the heart of problematic violence in the United States is an issue of maturity. I, I don't think they've understood the data. It's not about income. It's about young men need other fathers and older older men in their life at a particular age. And if you get enough of those guys, young men together without men around like that, they'll kill each other over issues of status. And that's, that's about 60% of the homicides in this country every year for the last 40 years. Right, so it's maturity, and then after, and there's more to maturity than that. That's impulse control and and um, empathy and self-awareness. And there's all those things involved, and then after maturity is intelligence, and all the all the ways that the intellect can be used to solve problems that don't need to become physical, and then after that we have noticing and having situational awareness and knowing what to look for and paying attention to those instincts that we so often ignore, and then last but not least we get to the D part where we're talking about deterrence and distance management. Once it becomes physical or almost physical, everything is about distance management. And then when it gets physical again, and we're doing the delivery systems of what we do, which in functional martial arts means combat sports, it's again about distance management. But that's that's the Reader's Digest version of what I wrote. I haven't really talked about it yet because I hadn't had a publisher yet, but now that, that I have the publisher secured, that's what the book is. I wound up writing two books um, so 
Fortunately, my publisher allowed me to break it up, and he's going to publish both. And the first one is just about everything I talked about, which is primarily mind, and ends with a section on aliveness for people who do want to train, give an idea what to look for. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, I think, still about 100,000 words. So it's going to be a pretty sizable book. How many total words did you write? Average book is 80,000 words, by the way. <laughs> Yeah. Total words. I feel like you were like did like eight or nine hundred thousand. Four hundred and twenty. <laughs> That's Joe. Okay, so we number. have at least a trilogy in there yeah. somewhere. But also, I'll, I would say, <clears throat> I kind of sometimes write for a living. Uh, it's if you think of like building a house or uh, a really beautiful sculpture, it's like you need a lot of rock to chip away to mm-hmm. get to the sculpture. You can't start with the sculpture. Yep. You need a lot of lumber, and some of it's gonna be waste, but you're gonna get a beautiful house. And I mean, it's way better to not get writer's block and get everything in your head on paper, mm-hmm. even though it's 500,000 words, and go, okay, here's 90 on this book and 90 on this, because that 90 is gonna be, you're gonna chip away all that rock that doesn't matter. So I think you did the right thing. Don't get me wrong. I'd rather be staring at full pages than empty ones going, yeah, mm, right. Yeah, what 100%. should I put on this piece yeah, of paper? Yeah, easy to ship away at. When do you plan on having that come out? Uh, well, I'm supposed to submit the, tell them what I want for the cover art, which I haven't figured out yet, and, and submit that to him by the end of this month. And mm-hmm. he doesn't give me a date, but I, I would think this year if he wants it by the end of the month. But this is my first ever book, so I have no idea how long that process takes. Are you going to continue to write? I am going to continue to write. I really like to. I like writing a lot. I like the process of writing. I feel like it teaches me a lot, just writing, and, and it, I, fi- I find it cathartic, and I enjoy about writing all kinds of stuff. I don't think I want to write about violence anymore. I think I, I got everything out, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> and, you did um, a deep dive, if you will. I did a deep dive, and I do think, uh, and I have to say, John's been a big help, too. He's helped me do a lot of the editing, and uh, and he might you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I do think everything somebody needs to know how in order to keep themselves or the people they care about safe, I think I covered it to some extent in that book. So it's like I don't feel like I have anything extra to say. I wish more people encountered violence. Yeah. Like I don't want to uh, – I don't want de- – well, sometimes I want dead bodies on the street if I'm being honest. But I – it would round the edges more, I think, if people got a little bit more into the practical world instead of the conceptual, yeah. the consequential for your actions or – Behaviors, yes, yeah. and, I, and really, I mean, I, you guys can all speak to this very well at the table. There's a, such a, I mean, how many times have you seen somebody brand new coming to the gym? Like, I don't know if you guys know this, but I'm pretty badass. I'm basically I, I, a street fighter. I, I, so if you guys yeah. wanted to line up, we can go from biggest to smallest, and then you That's know, usually it doesn't go their way. Right. There's what that you think you can do, or the classic. Yeah, I don't, I don't really need to train because when I go, Matt, I go hard. <laughs> And like that's no, I just go crazy. I go crazy when I find I go crazy. I find that other gear that I've never spent time searching for. But when I get there, I've got all the skills. I think it actually goes like this because I've, for the last fifteen years, encountered it. It goes, uh, yeah, I haven't really trained much, but I've been in a lot of street fights. Yeah. And then I just usually look at them and go, "Hmm." yeah, I, I think it would change people's tone. I think it would change the way that they act. It just, it would. There's there's another aspect. You're 100% right. There's another aspect to it as well. And that as a society, we've gotten to a point where there's a lot of people who've been sheltered from any kind of violence and they're completely ignorant about the topic. And if Joe Biden says, well, police should shoot him in the leg, to to them, that makes sense. Is that not a good idea? Yeah. (laughs) And let me just tell you, I shot some (laughs) fuckers in the leg and they ran off and I had to chase it. (laughs) 
So, um, you know, we have we just have a population that is grossly ignorant, I think, about the realities of violence. You can yeah. see what's happening in my city. And, yeah, you know, um, like I told you I when I saw you Friday, like we have we have vacancy here in Montana. Yeah. Believe me, we my wife and I think about it all the yeah. time. Your city, uh, we were talking about the video that we both briefly saw. I guarantee you this is probably on Big Ricky's phone as like a screensaver. Yeah. It's a two-minute montage of, what was it, two minutes of two months? Two months, yeah. And, of course, they were, uh, they were narrowing towards a specific thing. But it was cars on fire, people shooting up intravenously on the street, the, just the detritus in the homeless, people going crazy. Yeah. Uh, people just literally there was, the best picture I think was the one where it was just the legs it was a porta potty <laughs> but from the waist to the feet was sticking straight up yeah I'll assume he dropped a valuable item he or she I don't want to assume what it was but that was the most amazing picture that I saw it was full porta potty dive well, but it, you guys are in the middle of a very interesting I don't know what to call it. I would say social experiment, but I don't know if that's the right word for it. Well, just to circle back to what I was saying before, why I think it's in, like, like, who wants to talk about that topic? Like, why do I want to come on here and talk about race discrepancies in crime rates between different races? Why bring that up? I'm a white guy. Why, why should we even talk about that? But look about what hap look what happened in Portland. So for many, many years, decades, really, Portland was one of the safer American cities. We had some gang violence in the 80s similar to what we have now. Not quite as bad, but similar. Late 80s, early 90s, they, they put together a gang task force, and these guys just specialized on paying attention to the gang members and trying to prevent these shootings, and they solved it. And we have a councilwoman named Joanne Hardesty, who's a, an awful human being. There's a video of her where she calls the police because her Lyft driver refuses to roll the window up, so that's a fun one to watch. But She's transparently a horrible human being. But she decided that the gang violence task force um, it was racist because they spent 65% of their time dealing with the black community when in Portland the black community is about 18%. So therefore racist, right? And so they eliminated the gang violence response team. They got rid of it. And anybody that wants to go look at the data now, depending on the month, I think the last time I checked, we've had an 800% increase in shootings. And guess who... 65% of the victims are. Probably that uh, 18%. Yeah. And so my question to her would be, well, how much, how much time do the victims of those dead black kids deserve? 18%? Do they deserve 18% of the police officer's time or 65%? So until we actually start acknowledging these differences, when someone comes up and says, well, they spent 65% of their time in the black community and the black community is only 18%, people raise their hand and go, wow, that sounds racist. You actually have to talk about, well, that's they're not there because they're racist. They're there because that's where the crime is. Yeah. They're in Chicago because that's where the crime is. And if you want them not to be there because them being there is by definition racist, you're going to have what we have down in Chicago, which is a lot of young, dead kids. And instead of dead gang members, through the crossfire, we're seeing like Mecky James, who was four years old. Yeah, yeah. And we're gonna get more and more of that until people just stand up and say, listen, I don't wanna hear the bullshit. But then when they do that, you might have a problem on your hands already that you can't work yourself out of. Like the, the, the direction that Portland is. It takes seem, years. Seems to be heading. Yes. Well, it takes years to get where, again, I don't live there, so from an outside perspective, it seems as if it has been incremental to get to where it is a drastic shift in policy or again them deciding well the answer is more police it's yeah. not actually remove the police from these uh 
inner cities or wherever it may be, probably a larger police presence yeah. w- would be required. And actually, you know, I've, uh, talking with Paul Sharper, people who work around there, um, the gang members obviously don't want more police there. Right. But it seems like the people who live in those areas who are the victim of those stray bullets, like, will you please yeah. come here more? Oh, 100%. 100%. But if you need 300 more officers to do that, we're talking, you're going to be flipping calendar months and calendar years, and then they're all, you know, they, you might have 300 bodies. Mm-hmm. They don't have experience. Right. It just, it takes so long for that. It's the analogous to me of, I don't think they actually steal an air, or steer an aircraft carrier with a wheel anymore, but if you really, 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 really spun it really fast for a really long time, I don't think it would seem like it's turning. Right. No, that's for so. sure. I mean, it take it took less than a year for Portland, not even that. It took a couple months for shootings to triple and for the city to start to fall apart. Within six months, the city went from being very safe to being very dangerous. And it'll take, if there was 180, to if, if all of a sudden people pulled their head out of their ass in Portland and voted 180% different from what they're doing now, 180 degrees differently, it would still take, like you said, five or six years. You yep. can't just take these officers and just throw them on the street. Plus, who wants to work there? So, you know, and then you have to, you have to, develop a gang violence response team again. They have to establish relationships with who's on the street currently and what those guys are doing. And it takes much, much longer to fix it, and it takes just a fraction of a moment to ruin it. And it's not the kind of thing that you know people should just experiment with what it looks like if we just get rid of half our police force. It's not, not a good idea. I have ye- I've yet to be able to find somebody who is just entrenched in the defund the police narrative, but I would really like to have a conversation. Come to Portland. I, be- <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so, I mean, it's, I would just talk to him, like, so let's play this out. Mm-hmm. Um, how capable of a person are you to handle things that you would call 911 for? Mm-hmm. And if the answer is not extremely, extremely capable and competent, how do you think that plays out? Mm-hmm. And I, so I don't know. Oh, I mean, I guess I don't know where the conversation would go, but that's where I would certainly open it with. Mm-hmm. Well, it's I- ironic, but like you said before, the people who live in those neighborhoods, when they're, when you're polled, the people who live in some of those zip codes in Chicago that have 70 shootings a weekend or whatever. Oh, they're probably crying for police. 70, 80% police. want police. Yeah. yeah. It was, I saw an ironic, uh, a video uh, yesterday that where there was a whole group of black citizens from that neighborhood protesting to get more police presence in their neighborhood because they're tired of their of the shots going by their kids and across the street were a bunch of white antifa kids heckling them because they wanted to defund the police i don't think there is a big movement of people that want to get rid of the police i don't think it's even a sizable percentage of the left i think most of the people i talk to in portland are ignorant they have no idea about the crime data. They have no idea about the shootings. What I started out this conversation talking about, about how the differences there and, and the rates of uh, crime, they, they don't know. They just don't know. And if you were to ask them, okay, how many unarmed black people do you think police murdered in a year? I've had college professors tell me thousands. Really? Yes. They literally have no idea, and they've not taken the five minutes it takes to look. Chris Cuomo on his show the other day, said, well, if police officers shot as many white suspects as they did black suspects, we wouldn't have this problem. It takes two minutes for not even that. It takes 30 seconds for Chris Cuomo to, to realize that's not the case. That's yeah. statistically backwards. He either doesn't care enough to look at the research or he's lying. And then 
he spent too much time watching the Chris Cuomo show because anybody that watches that show is going to turn off CNN or turn off whatever that is, and they're going to have this idea in their head that's completely backwards. The narrative is backwards, you know, backwards. Yeah. So until until I think we start talking about that and being honest about that, it's never going to be fixed. But that doesn't mean I think they want to defund the police. They just have in their head the the CNN, MSNBC type New York Times narrative about what law enforcement is in the United States, which is the least racist group of law enforcement on the planet Earth. But they don't know that. And uh, and and then you've got a small group of extremists who are loud and obnoxious and violent that are spineless politicians in Portland for some reason capitulate to. Why are you even having a conversation? Like they have to have meetings with these people. Why are you gonna have, if I was yeah. mayor, I'm not gonna have a meeting with this person. Mm-hmm. This person should be screaming on the corner selling pencils. They have no business sitting at the adult table during conversation time. When's the next election cycle in Portland? We just had it uh, less than a year ago. I think Did it was six anything ago. change based no. on what's been going on? And I'll tell you why. <laughs> Ted Wheeler was elected again, which everybody's thinking, why is Ted Wheeler the, you know, the mayor? Why was he reelected? Well, because his running mate or not running me, his opponent was a full-on communist. She's a woman that wore dresses, I'm not kidding you, with pictures of Mao Zedong on them. They had a ballot that she'd sent in, and she'd taken a picture of it herself, a write-in ballot where she'd written in Che Guevara. And she narrowly lost, but this was the choice that we were given in, in Portland. So until we get other sensible, grown adults who aren't crazy, freaking communists, to run for office in Portland, our choice is Ted Wheeler. Did you say she narrowly lost? Yeah, I, oh, I, I don't know how much, but it, it was it was not a landslide, and for a while she was polling neck and neck, and I was like, that's incredibly disturbing. I cannot imagine if this woman becomes mayor. I mean, then I really might have to just pick up and move to Idaho or Montana. All you really need to do is listen to people who have survived either communist or socialist experiments, who grew up in that era, and yeah. listen to them talk about it, and yeah. it should. It, it should just lop off the head of that argument. Should. I uh, There's a great, I don't know how, the internet's amazing. It's undefeated and everything. <laughs> but it was a picture of a, uh, I believe it was a young woman who, it, like, socialism and smash capitalism. There was a sticker on her Apple MacBook. Yeah. There was, yeah. like, a thousand bucks with her latte in yeah. Starbucks. It was, like, yeah, $8. I saw it. And I like, saw made, it. made by Chinese yeah. semi-slave labor. You're just smashing yeah. the hell out of that capitalism. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Very ironic, for sure. Holy shit, how do we get down the political rabbit hole? Actually, I like it. They're important conversations. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. People avoid them, and mm-hmm. they'll just repeat talking points. Mm-hmm. You look at the data, it paints a different picture. Mm-hmm. And also, anybody who thinks that shooting somebody in the leg is a good idea is a fucking retard. Yeah. Yeah, and for anybody that's watching this that wants more on that, I did do a debate, a written debate with another author named Ollie Risby, and people could look it up. They go, Matt Thornton BLM debate or Matt Thornton police shootings. And the reason, only reason I would send people there is because all, all it is is data. Yeah. Here are, the, here are the points. Here's the accusations. Here's what's actually going on, and here's what's going to happen if, if we go down this road. And unfortunately, that's exactly what's happened. I was uh, – I try to not engage in – uh, debates on the internet because yeah. I have found that they escalate yeah. very rapidly from uh, information to just ad hominem attacks. Right, you're a piece of shit. I'm like, yes, but yeah. look at this. <laughs> Can we say non politically correct things? It's the internet. No, here on your yes. Okay, so this helped me a lot. I used to fight on the internet. I used to five, six, seven years ago. I don't know. Maybe my little brother, someone I trusted, he saw me getting embroiled in these things and. 
wrote to me real quick. Apologies for my non-PC language. So, you know, John, fighting on the internet is kind of like the Special Olympics. Even if you win, you're still retarded. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just, yeah. just for, cl for clarity on, on this particular, it wasn't him and I arguing on a form or something? No, we, it was written back and forth. Yeah, I followed it, was, that. it was letter wiki. So and I, I thought that would be a good idea because get, get the data out there for people. Well, it's interesting. What I have found is when the data doesn't support people's narrative, mm -hmm. and this is the what I encountered the last time I was talking to somebody, they kept coming back with, well, the data doesn't paint the whole picture. Right. And I agree with them. Like, you're right. It doesn't paint the whole picture. But what it does is it can put the colors on the canvas and show you the directions that maybe you should be looking. Mm -hmm. And if you were going to ignore the data and you just want to focus on the colors, and I, I'm not talking about the colors of the skin. Maybe that was a poor metaphor. You, you can't have one without the other. Mm -hmm. I understand that you believe very deeply in what you're saying, but mm -hmm. that has nothing to do with the validity of what you're saying. The depth of belief and passion of belief and accuracy of belief are very different things yes. that people struggle with. Sometimes diametrically opposed. Yeah. Yes. Well, and I think that's the crux of it too, and that's to bring it back to jujitsu again for a second and then we go right back to this, but that's what I was talking about with, if you look at the training methods and if you look at how uh, things evolve, I think the biggest problem that people have is they attach themselves to an idea and then they become so committed to that idea that they're no longer able to back away from it and say, you know what? I was wrong back then. Happens all the time in jiu-jitsu where one of these guys comes in and, and shows me something that I thought I already knew and that I've been teaching to my students for 10 years and now my choice is I either change the way I teach it because I've been given better information and I suck it up and I go, okay, I know I used to show it this way, but check this out. I found something out that's, that, that's better. And then I let go of my ego, I guess. And I just admit that I was wrong. And, and Or that something has changed and gotten better. It doesn't have to be Evolution wrong. Evolution is the way. Yeah. I'm glad not, we're not flying around yeah, in the yeah. Wright Brothers, no, no, brothers no, airplane. Yeah, right? no, no, no. And, 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 and that's true. Like, it's not that it was wrong. It's just that there's better. Like, and, and, yeah. and oftentimes, most of the time, there is a better way. Mm -hmm. you know? But I think we just get, we get so attached. Like our identity becomes attached to it. We, we, we make things so personal. And with politics, I for sure think that's that's the thing. Like people I think get, what you just said, when you make it personal, that's where it becomes a problem. I think yeah. you, I mean, I don't know if it's impossible to maintain your objectivity, but I'd say it's pretty damn difficult. Yeah. Well, a good example of it is, is uh, like with uh, COVID, right? So historically, like if, if let's say we rewind the clock like five years and we, and we go look at social media, if you said like, who are the anti-vaxxers? It was the left. Like the left was really attached to the, like you would see like these, all the crazy people who were like, ah, oh, vaccines are bad. I'm not gonna vaccinate my kids, blah, 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 blah. And then as soon as that party decided that, oh wait, everyone should be vaccinated. It's like all of a sudden, like now you look at it politically. Now I'm just going back to the political thing, but who are the people that are like, I'm never gonna get vaccinated. Like it's not the left anymore, like it's the right. And then the left is like, oh yeah, everyone needs to get vaccinated. It's like, well, in that case, you just ask yourself, what would happen if Trump was reelected and then the government was pushing the vaccines for everybody, including kids, for everybody, as they are now? How many of these people Correct. would be this so is my point. all about yeah. it? Exactly. Yeah. Be, 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 because it'd be personal. 
Yeah. And, but you're no longer thinking, like the, the critical thinking's just disappeared. Like now it's just uh, like group think and it's, uh, it's like a, Diggins likes to talk about like politics in terms of sports. It's like mm-hmm. you've attached yourself to a particular football team yeah. and now it doesn't matter. Like that's your team. That's a particularly good analogy because the people on that team don't give a fuck about you. Yes, they'll leave. They'll come from San. No, <laughs> yeah, they'll, no, go, that's they'll go from San Francisco to New York for an extra couple hundred thousand dollars, and your life is invested in them, and they don't give a fuck about you. And and that's super important because with this particular topic, we're talking about police shootings and wanting to defund the police because of it. The narrative that the mainstream media has been running with. Uh, is completely opposite the data. Yeah, and I'd encourage anybody who's listening to me who doesn't believe me, whether you believe me or not, look it up yourself. You can uh, at uh, in that letter wiki debate I did. It's all there's all the citations. Or you can just go to the BJS, however you want to do it, and see. But because it's so completely different from the mainstream media. I can see why a lot of people would be hesitant because, well, if the New York Times is saying this, if CNN is saying this, Washington, how could they be wrong? Washington Post is saying this. And then to going back to, to John's point, to fully take in what has happened and you realize Chuck Schumer, for example, knows everything I just said. Um, Lori Lightfoot knows everything I just said. And yet they still go through with it anyway they don't give a fuck about those little kids who are being nope. shot right now. Nope. They don't care at all. And you have to you have to realize that these people are in power care so much more about votes than they do black lives. They don't care about dead black kids because there's no way they could push those policies if they did. Yeah. And and the majority of their audience, I'll grant you, is probably ignorant about the data. But I don't think they are. She knows Lori Lightfoot, the mayor of Chicago, she knows where all the shootings are. She knows why the police are on her street. She knows why the police are doing what they're doing. When she comes down on the police, knowing that, that she's wrong anyway, she doesn't care about those people that are getting shot. She doesn't care about those poor people in that neighborhood. And I think that's a hard thing to realize. It's not a fun thing to think about and realize that there's those are a lot of the people who are in charge right now. But I don't think that there's any way around that. Lighter question, but more <laughs> more relevant to yesterday, why do people's legs keep snapping in half in the UFC? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, we've been talking about that. What the fuck? I don't, I, and I also am not a fan of the slow motion replay. Yeah, I yeah. don't need to see that shit. That's stop the with, stuff of nightmares. God. Yeah. I don't know how, how many years a, a good athlete can cut weight and then start to get into their 30s and still cut weight. And how, I, I wondered how if it had something oh, to do with Bone density. Bone density. Because they're starving themselves. Yeah. yeah. <sighs> calcium deficiency yeah, yeah. all the things that go on there i don't know i just i just can't imagine it's that healthy to be in your yeah. mid-30s and, and been doing that for 10 years to your body what's the recovery from something like that look like because if you i mean for connor it looked like about two inches above the ankle it was definitely full the sh- it, was the it was not the ankle. both broke oh because it was like that well i know because they put up the damn gumby slow-mo-tron they didn't just, you know i was disappointed uh because we i obviously watched the fights but uh, i was disappointed he didn't finish that guillotine um, he had that sucker that actually led to his demise but um <laughs> they didn't go back and show it but i'm sure because he threw a ton of leg yep. kicks to start that fight i'm sure that he had a, a kick get checked there you're 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 fibia and tibia don't you don't step back like if it had he actually rolled his ankle 
Yeah, that happens, like in basketball and stuff. Checked enough to probably internally Hairline, damage it. But I, I, th- I think it was fractured. Oh. There's no doubt it had to have been fractured from something Yeah, then you put a lot of weight on it. Yeah, because yeah, that's not normal. So how'd the guillotine... Because uh, he tried to jump it, didn't he? Yeah, he pulled guard in MMA. Well, then was on the receiving end of some elbows that looked like they were coming down with a touch more than just gravity behind He's very it. good off... I didn't see that, but he was very good off the fence, and I would guess that he was probably already injured at that point. That might have been part of it. Yeah, yeah, he could have been. I mean, he was trying to up kick with both feet, though, too. I don't know if he was trying to take any stress off his feet. I don't, uh, I don't know. I guess the, 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 the honest, true, short answer is I don't know. Yeah. Um, from where I was watching the fight, like the, it, had it been a checked kick, it would have definitely happened before the guillotine attempt. So you're you know, uh, theory could be true. Because he he was up kicking with both feet hard, too. But I've watched, we've all watched lots of guys. Uh, Forrest finished the fight with a broken arm. Um, Dislocated shoulder, yeah. Yeah. Um, And that's just gross. Yeah. Because I don't (laughs) need to see anything move in that direction. (laughs) No, but even like my daughter, like when when, uh, judo nationals, after she subluxated her shoulder out the back and took a piece of bone off and then (sighs) fought for 90 more seconds and won that so I think in that environment, you see it a lot where guys, you know, pain, the pain, I don't think they, they recognize it. Most of those guys are breaking their hands every fight, too. And people don't know that either. So what's the theory on this? I, my knowledge, I mean, I like the UFC. I don't know much about it. Why do they force them to diet down to some ridiculous weight that they're not going to fight? They know that's anyway? voluntary. Mm-hmm. So it, oh, okay. it's like wrestling, yeah, it's, an, it's an advantage. And okay. Wrestlers for a long time now it's kind of become universal, but they had an advantage because they had been doing that since middle school and high school. And if I kind of like the jujitsu thing, like you weigh in and you fight five minutes later, yeah. maybe your friend gives you a little bit of Pedialyte or something. But because they would die if they fought after, well, actually, probably the most boring fight ever because they right. would just fall. Some of them, some, some, they come in twenty five pounds heavier. Some of them heavier. die before weigh ins, yeah. like literally die. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, you're not you're not cutting twenty pounds getting on the scale and then fighting there's no way what do they have now about 48 hours to rehydrate and at eat? least at least a day 36 maybe about 36 so they i mean they basically yo-yo right they get down as close to they can as underneath and then they start coming and then back. I, but ivs and everything yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. And, and and for people that are listening that don't understand what weight cutting is it's not weight cutting it's dehydration yeah, yeah. water so, shedding essentially that's all it is like you're not losing weight you're dehydrating yourself. So there's a whole water loading process that takes place leading up to it. And then it's a hundred percent water. Um, but that's hard on your body. Your kidneys shut down, like your organs start to fail. Like there, there, there are significant problems that arise out of that. And unfortunately there are several examples of people who have died from their weight cut. So how would it change the UFC if you fought at your walk around weight? I'd love to see that. Be better. It would. Love I feel it. like being be that more like the original Horian. It would be yeah. more like Horian's original thing, where it's yep. like, yeah, this is just to see who's. I better. mean, you can still have weight classes, sure, right? I mean, yeah. so you're not fighting at 280 versus 135, but I mean, with the dehydration too, I go, I go back to the the brain injury. I mean, it's you're decreasing yeah. the amount of cushioning you have in your the, head, and then just everything. Getting, everything. The, there, there's way ways you can do it. I've thought about it. <clears throat> it would require a little bit more effort on the organization's part. But you could basically say, look, you can't be less than a, this percentage of yeah. your walk-around rate. They would have to check you like two weeks before the fight, yeah. check your weight so that they're they're monitoring your weight. But it, it can definitely be done. 
And I feel like the fighters would be healthier for it. They'd probably recover yeah. faster. Yeah. Their camps would be better. Yeah, it's it would, like John's saying, though, the pressure is not coming from the UFC for them to cut. I mean, maybe it is if if the if the big money fights at the lower weight class, that would be the pressure. But they're cutting because they want to cut. They yeah. want an advantage. It's an advantage. They want to fight it's at that weight class. What we, what we started talking about, right? Like size matters. Yeah. yeah. So, so like if I can come in, like, like if you and I are going to fight at 155 and I can walk around at 175 and I can cut more weight than you can and I'm better at cutting weight and then I'm better at putting the weight back on. When we fight each other, I'm going to have an advantage. I'm going to oh, be yeah. slightly heavier than well, you. Well, first off, I'm never making that weight. So <laughs> that was the weight I was when I graduated high school and that was the last time the scale ever read that. And so. the other thing people don't realize who like I've had a particular athlete who would fight at 155 weigh in at 156 because it was amateur and, and it wasn't title fights. And we would weigh in the hotel on our way to the fight the next day and he'd be 171 pounds every single time. And I don't think people realize how big the weight cuts actually are. Like it's a significant amount of weight. A guy who's walking around at 170, 171, and weighing it at 156. That's a that's a big difference. Do they just feel like they're dying when they're at that moment getting on the scale? They are dying. <sighs> no thanks. Have any of you ever seen a human being get punched in the face as many times as that man with green hair? No. I was <laughs> maybe Randall Tech Cobb. <laughs> Did you I, watch that one, Matt? No. No, Holy he got smokes. lit up bad, but he kept I coming. I believe the number was over 200 strikes to the face. Oh. It was, I've, we watched the fight together. Uh, Leah was almost screaming at the TV, move your head. Yeah. It was like he had an, a rod. And I'm not saying this is any type of criticism. I don't know shit about UFC fighting, but it appeared as if his head had a rod through the head. And he just was like, there was. He, but he kept coming forward. He did, in fact, he over 200 strikes. I described it, we were talking, and I said, I think that's what it looks like to murder somebody in yeah. slow motion. Yeah. That's yeah, not fun to watch. No, it was, un it was hard. They stopped the fight with 30 seconds. Well, actually, what are your thoughts on that? They Horrible stop. Horrible stoppage, I agree. But it, did it, it save him a year no, or two but here, on his no. life? But, but here's he the, took here, all the damage and, he's going to take. And here's, here's the other thing. I get your argument, because Lee and I argued about this. No, I was this. curious. We argued in the locker room, actually, today. Um, look, getting in a cage and getting punched and kicked and kneed in the head it, that's going to take years off your life that's not good in or case anyone in case anyone listening that thinks that, take that it's good life. for you to get punched in the face it's not so the fact that we're sitting down and watching people get paid to punch each other in the face and then we say oh well good thing they stopped it cuz that could have been bad for him he was still throwing punches he was in the fight. There was 30 seconds left. Actually, less than that. Uh, like less all the than 30 seconds, you got to let him finish it. He and it was his. I think That's it was his thing. debut. He, 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 Matt, he stepped in third on round two. No, yeah, he stepped so in he, on 11 days notice. It was his pro debut. No, it he could have finished. Pro, it was his UFC. Oh, UFC debut. But he could have finished strong. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was horrible. Yeah, it would have been a win to just say like, oh, I just went three rounds on yeah. the main card. Yeah. I've never fought in the UFC before. I took the fight on 11 days notice. It was a bad stoppage. Now. There was an, the next stoppage was good. Like I'm not a guy who's like let him fight till the end. But in that particular case, that there was no reason to stop it at that point. If you were stopping it to help him, why didn't you stop it in the first round yeah. or the second round? Like he was getting punched in the face every round. Like at what point do you decide? Like it hadn't changed. Like nothing shifted at the moment it got stopped. 
that damage was being taken every single round. What do you think was going through uh, Shane O'Malley's head after striking him the first 190 times and the dude is just, he's like, are fighting, fucking zombies Fighting real? the Terminator, yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. he lit him up. This is why he, he can't look, rely on strikes. He yeah, would look up at exactly. the clock, too. He lit, yeah, he lit him up all three rounds. The guy, but yeah. literally, Matt, it would be just like me walking at you, mm-hmm. and O'Malley was moving all over the place, but the dude had a fucking shark just after and like sometimes he'd like look up at the clock and just be like bap bap I mean I mean I take it back the guy's head did move backwards yeah (laughs) (laughs) he did drop him in the first round he did this is why jujitsu is so important yeah you gotta be able to choke people uh yeah that was a that was a hell of a fight that was a good fight the um oh who was it who fought uh wonder boy last night uh Gilbert Burns. Burns yeah yeah Gilbert Burns now that was a good fight that was a good fight. That was an example of a world-class grappler. And he took the fight to the ground a couple of times. Didn't I, finish him, but... I love how the crowd boos when very technical shit is happening. They're they all want, because they uneducated. Want, well, they want rock and yeah. sock them, right? They want rock and sock them. They stand want blood. Them. Yeah. They want pro wrestling. Tie their wrists together and give each of them a switchblade and like, this is what I paid my X amount of dollars to be here to watch. Beat it. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. I used to, I used to want rock and sock them too. And then I started doing jiu-jitsu i'm like oh i understand yeah. i also used to say why would he tap to that right <laughs> <laughs> why is he do why is he just get your arm back just stand up <laughs> yeah. i just go crazy <laughs> no it is a different experience watching the ufc isn't it good though it's great i yeah. actually enjoy the like being pressed up against the cage watching that and the battle for underhooks and the split stance and no one has any idea how exhausting that range is and that a is the, or what it is and they're actually it's trying it's the to slow, do it's the slowest moment in the fight like from from a spectator standpoint it's the slowest most boring part of the fight it's the that that is the most exhausting part of the fight that clinch work plus to the people booing it's like hey if this isn't entertaining enough for you, the cage door is capable of opening. Come on in. Mm-hmm. Like, if you want to get in there and show it out, entertain the crowd, like, go for it. Yeah. It's not going to go your way. Yeah. What's the future of uh, SPG look like, Matt? I got to get you guys out of here pretty soon because the better halves will kill us. I think it looks good. I, I never planned anything yet. It seems to be <laughs> okay, so. Okay, hold on. Travis, what does the future of SPG look like <laughs> as the VP? Um, I, I, it, well, hold on. Let's talk about what we actually get to do this year. Okay. Camp. Fall yes. camp. Yes. That's going to be awesome. So that Good is point. in the near future. Yes. Yes. October. And and that's what I was going to start not talking about fall camp, but just I think the future of SBG looks great. Um, I think coming out of whatever this last, whatever the last 18 months was, whatever you think it was, I don't know. But yes, things are tournaments are being scheduled again mm-hmm. fall camps happening again um reno nevada reno nevada mm-hmm. yep. for one two three of october right? yes yes yep okay. yep um great instructors already uh henry aikens is going to be teaching so that's going to be awesome um i think it's great i'm getting uh constant requests we just got one this morning keith and i did for uh, somebody in minot north dakota that's interested in you know, they, they had messaged us back before COVID and then everything pulled back. So people are starting to get back to business as usual. Uh, the gyms are growing. I mean, I, you know from training that the gyms in Montana have just seen nothing but a surge in, yeah. in um, people participating. I think COVID hopefully reminded people that, hey, guess what? 
if you get sick and you're already out of shape and fat, it's probably going to be worse for you than if you're healthy. No, it definitely didn't remind them of that at all. No? No. Okay, no well, they I'm, looked in the mirror and they were like, I look fucking awesome right now. <laughs> Because otherwise, I'm the re- obesity I'm, rate in the United States would have probably changed statistically. Right. But if you go to the data on that one, it's not awesome. Well, yeah, because the media talked about that a lot. They talked about a lot about how, oh, yeah, by the way, the, the, the 2% of people that are dying from this are, by the way, mm-hmm. super fat, smoke, uh, or are 99 years old. But Have you, you had Rob on here, Rob Wolf? I have. Yeah. I have to slow him down, though. Because rapidly he starts talking about things I have no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> the science. Yeah. He yeah. just starts, I mean, I had him on, we were talking specifically about element. I'm like, so you're saying it's salt. Yeah. Like, okay, got it. Yeah. Electrolytes. Good. Right. <laughs> no salt, no electrolytes. Bad. Yeah. Like, let's keep it at this level. No, Rob's awesome. Yeah. Very, very data-driven individual. Yeah. Extremely data-driven. Yeah. I, I, the conversation we were having the other night, I don't know if you guys talked about it, though, about what happened to him on... Google and everything with this business. He did bring it up a little yeah, bit. Yeah, that's, that's insane. Well, so. that's why he shifted his model too. Yeah, yeah. and that's kind of what sucks is if you play on those uh, ecosystems, the fine print which none of us read. Yeah, or the, have access to. Yeah, or, yeah. That's another great point. It's I mean you're beholden to them. They can go you know take their basketball and yep. leave the court if they want to. Yeah. For fall camp, if you registered previously and paid, do you have to register and pay again? No. 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 Because I did. Okay, yeah, no, you're in no. there. We have your set. No, no, I paid twice. Oh. So what I would like to do is keep the money but scholarship somebody. Oh, that's Maybe awesome. a local law enforcement person okay. in the area. Yeah. Because I you, just... You, you registered twice and paid twice? Yeah, dude. Zach sent the email out, and I was like, I got to register again, so I paid... Zach sent what email out? It said, fall camp is here. Click here to register. And then clicking here to register had money associated with it, so I said, sweet PayPal. Nope. Any, <laughs> anyone who's listening that happened to register for Spring Camp 2020, yeah, um, you're good. Yeah, no, that's cool. We'll definitely find some. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm either in it, Portland yeah. or, I mean, what I recommend is people just reach out to Travis directly over all mediums yes. to flood both his inbox and direct messages and explain to him why you think you're the person who should go. And I don't want to hear anything about this. Communicate I, directly with Travis. I appreciate that. My, my email address is Matt Thornton <laughs> at sbg.com. I'll add one thing to your last question. So um, this is going to be the first camp. I've, I've managed to kind of weasel myself into the last several camps coming from Korea. It's like usually short flight, really it, commuter, but it usually fits with midterms or, or something where I can, I'm taking a week off or I can reschedule a week and, um, I try to dovetail it with a academic conference, which may or may not be a real academic conference, but in my yeah. application, it's real. This year is the first one I'm not going to make in a while. Uh, but so that's sad for me individually. But if I go back to like the the prospect and and you know people who might be a little bit um, feeling bleak about COVID, good friend and student uh, Michael Hines opened up in Texas in the middle of all of this. Uh, Travis went down to his seminar. Um, he'll, he'll have Matt there. He'll have Henry there. He's, I mean, he's he's up and running. But in the middle of all of this, and he's he was a purple belt when he started. I gave him his brown belt. He's not a he's not a famous guy. He's not a world class competitor. He's not you know anything. Just just a good coach and a good human being. And uh, they're ready to move. Like they've already outgrown their location. They yeah. have they yeah. have 150 students or something. They can't. That's so awesome. Yeah, everything's overflowing. And so I mean, if and, I t- and, and the interesting thing about Michael is he said he wanted to open a school. And if I would have said, 
you must do SBG. And then at any friction with Matt or Travis, it's coming back to me. And, you know, I said, look, I strongly recommend that you talk to Matt and Travis about SBG, but I'm not, you can do whatever you want. And he was like, well, I'm pretty smart. And I said, you are smart. You know, and, and he said, oh, maybe I can do it my, myself. And I said, anyway, go, go to Portland and meet Matt. Go, go talk to Travis. And he met them both and decided very quickly to uh, do SBG. And, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not really an expense. It's, it's an investment, which is going to, and I told him that. I said, yeah, it'll be a little bit up front. You're going to triple it, quadruple it on the back end. And, you know, he trusted me. He trusted them. And he's completely dominating in, in probably, you know, starting up in the worst possible yeah. time frame. So I think, you know, we're coming out of it already. And the, the people who are, you know, either existing gyms or they're starting, it's easy for me to say. But, I mean, I have the least skin in the game, but that also makes me the most objective. So I have pluses and minuses to my opinion. I'm objective because it doesn't make me any money either way. I, you know, I would say, like, anyone who's, who's on the fence about it it's it's just like it's like everything we've talked about this in our jujitsu how how much jujitsu costs you relative to what you were making when you started and what your family thought you were being selfish and how much jujitsu cost me financially and in terms of time and energy versus what i was making as a very poor you know 20 something year old person when i started um i think you know your personal jujitsu is a white belt your what do you call it? Not personal, but your institutional or organizational jujitsu as a black belt. Um, you it's, it's always worth investing in, and I and I think you know, timing can be better or worse. But I think um, for me and for everyone I know, and there's probably some exceptions to this rule, but um, the more they invest, the more they get. It's never not yep. paid itself back tenfold. You know? Yeah, and if somebody's thinking about wanting to train at SBG or something like that, best pl- best possible thing to do is come to a camp. You get to meet all the yeah. main instructors. Are well, yeah, not? they are open to everybody, which is a point maybe that uh, people don't understand. Maybe yeah. they think it's closed to just people who are members in the network, but... Yeah, anybody can come. And, yeah, it's just like and seminars. people like, like Philippe... T- today's well, seminar, like, it, anyone could have came. And there are really good established black belts in SBG right now who their first experience was, I'm going to come to a camp, camp yeah. and see how it is. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I'll let Matt close it out, but first, when uh, SBG Bozeman, let's chat a little bit about uh, when that sucker opens, which will tomorrow. be tomorrow, which is tomorrow. not when the episode's coming out. So yeah. by tomorrow, he means July 12th and forward. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it, uh, it it took longer than we thought. Um, mine and Keith's life got a little chaotic in the midst of starting our fourth location. Um, but it's beautiful. John went down and visited. It's awesome. It's a it's a fantastic, you know, what you would expect. Yeah. Um, beautiful facility. Uh, like I said, Ricky got his black belt yesterday. Um, Little footlocking son of a bitch. Yep. Uh, <laughs> he is pretty quick on that footlock. <laughs> we went down and uh, we started enrolling our first members last week. That's um, awesome. Ricky's meeting people every day. Yeah, uh, but he teaches his first classes on July twelfth. SBGBozeman.com. Yep, SBGBozeman.com. Normal spell, not B Z N B O Z E M A N. Not Bozone. Nope. Yeah, Just, I've seen some weird abbreviations yeah, of yeah, Bozeman yeah. actually. And I'll uh, Bo Angeles. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you yeah. heard that one? Yeah, I have. Yeah, yeah. I haven't seen it, but I've heard that one for sure. I've, if you walk down Main Street, you'll see it. Uh, Travis has been. I mean, again, I I have a 
less knowledge, but more objectivity maybe coming from afar. He's being a little bit modest because I, when I saw Bozeman, it's like Portland and Kalispell and some of these gyms that are established, they have to retrofit as we establish best practices. It's like, you have to say like, oh, that wasn't what I wanted to do. Let me change that. And so, you know, the retrofitting is the right thing to do and always be like, oh, this is better. We'll change this. But, but there are human and material vestiges of the old culture. And I, th- I think Bozeman, I see like, oh, this is like version 6.0 or mm-hmm. whatever, where you go 1.0, 2.0, 3.0. So you, all the mistakes are gone. Mm-hmm. All the retrofitting is gone. And like day one, you're starting with the most up-to-date technology and practices, which has is how it should be. Like if you teach a white belt today, how awesome are they going to be right. compared to a white belt you taught 20 years ago? Right. Yeah. And then business is the same thing. So they're starting at a very, like I was like, holy shit, this is like <laughs> day one, right? Day one, it's just yeah. perfect. 20 yeah. years of knowledge it's under his belt. It's yeah. not retrofitting all these old, old equipment and old practices and members who are like, well, you didn't teach me that way. Right, I, right. I still want to go rough. And then you got to kick those guys out and stuff. They, you're not, they don't have any of that. It's just clean and it's going to be awesome. Yeah. Hell yeah. Closing thoughts by the founder of SPG, Matt Thornton. Uh, well, I appreciate being here, having a conversation with you guys and having me on the podcast. Yeah. And, uh, it's been, it's been a long time coming. I've been on yours. You yeah. never come out here though yeah, once a year. So I'll be back next year. Uh, I'll have the book with me then. And uh, yeah, I'm just grateful, happy. Awesome. Take, take well, thanks for your time day. this weekend. It was a fantastic seminar. Good, it was thank great. You very much. I look forward to torturing people with the knowledge in the near future. <laughs> Good. <laughs> All right, guys. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. Thanks. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you. Thanks for taking the time to tune in, whether you're listening on an audio-only platform or you're watching on YouTube. I appreciate that you take the time every week to tune in. People ask me a lot, what can they do to help me spread the word? And the answer is actually embedded in the question. The biggest thing you guys can do to help me if you enjoy the podcast and you think it would be helpful to others is subscribe and Share it with other people. And if you have the time, go on to Apple Podcasts and leave me a rating and a review. If you think the podcast sucks, tell me it sucks and leave a zero-star review or the lowest stars possible. If you have a question, comment, or suggestion, you can go to clearedhotpodcast.com. And there is a contact me button right there, which will land in my inbox. And the last thing, if people are interested in helping out, what you can do is fly the old flag. And by that, I don't mean an actual flag because I don't have any of those. I'm talking about t-shirts or sweatshirts or hats, whatever it may be. Again, clearedhotpodcast.com. Click on the shop tab and hopefully something in there looks like it would be an item you would like to wear around town. And then you can tell people what it is when they ask you. But that is it. The biggest thing I can say is thank you. I truly appreciate it. Until next time. See you.